If you would, turn with me again to the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, we began uh, this journey through the book of Genesis in, uh, the, at the beginning of this year. And as you know, we, we came to the end of chapter 11 and we took a, a break for a moment from uh, the book of Genesis to consider First and Second Thessalonians. And so I just want to say, uh, as your pastor, I rejoice in the fact that although those two books, First and Second Thessalonians, are quite short, uh, that we as a church, as we seek to preach through the Word of God, have, as I've been your pastor in this short time, have completed two of those books together. And so that is such a joy to me uh, as your pastor. And as we look forward to coming to the end of Genesis, we'll take another break here in Genesis in, in several months, and we'll spend some time in Ruth. Uh, at the end of the year, we're going to do an Advent series at Christmas time, and then we'll begin again uh, the, the ending portion of Genesis in the coming year. Uh, but I look forward with great anticipation at the end of this year to consider that we would have walked through three books of the Bible together, and I'm looking forward to how God will faithfully serve us by his word as we turn again to the pages of this great, rich book, the first book of the Bible, the book of of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 12, and we'll look at verses 1 through 9. I'd like us to just stop again for a moment uh, and, and just pray uh, over this time, and then we will uh, jump in to the text together. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us in these moments to understand your word, Lord, that we would see the truth uh, that is proclaimed from these verses, that we would understand more of who you are and what uh, you have done and what you are continuing to do in our lives, that we would rightly apply this to our lives, Lord, that we would be changed by the power of your word before us and your spirit within us. So be honored and glorified in this time, Lord. Would you remove distractions from this place? Let us sit well under your word in these moments. And to you we give all the glory. Amen. I want to give a, a, just a brief recap of where we've been in the first 11 chapters of Genesis and how we got to where we are here today in chapter 12. It's been a moment since we've been in Genesis, and so I want us to consider where we've come from in these first 11 chapters. We begin in chapter 1, where we know so well that God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, and we see the sovereign creator, God, bringing about order and creation and, and, and establishing this world, this universe in which we live in, to the praise of his glory. We see all things created, but in particular, we see Adam and Eve created in the image of God, and they are placed in this garden that we know as uh, the Garden of Eden. And there, right away, we see God establishing his order and his law for this world. We see it in the relationship between the husband and the wife. We see it in how Adam is to reign over the created beings. But we also see it in a specific law, a command that God gives to Adam and Eve there in chapter 2, verse 16, that they are not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So from the very beginning, God sets a standard of trust and obedience as we just sung about. We know how the story goes. Adam and Eve disobey God. They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so sin enters into the world. The curse of sin comes upon humanity and all of creation. And yet in the fall, 
God gives a glimmer of hope. He promises a seed that will come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and bring redemption and restoration to God's creation. And so right away, the author gives us this anticipation of a seed to come. And so in chapter 4, we see Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And we wonder to ourselves, is one of these sons the seed of promise? But we learn very quickly that the seed does not come directly after Adam and Eve and their sons Cain and Abel. When we see the magnitude of depravity and hate and sin in the world as Cain kills his brother Abel. And so we then continue with the descendants of Adam all the way to Noah. And we come to Noah whose father Lamech prays that Noah would be the one to bring relief, that he would be the seed. And so in the midst of the wickedness of the world where the scripture tells us there that every intention and thought of man's heart was evil and God looks to destroy creation, he keeps a remnant for himself and Noah and his family. He hides them in the ark. He spares them from his judgment. And Noah and his family come out of the ark and we wonder to ourselves, is Noah the seed? But again, we learn very quickly that Noah's family too is a family of dysfunction. Noah gets drunk. His son Ham views his father in his nakedness and does this this act that is reprehensible before the Lord. And we're reminded again that this world is full of sinful, dysfunctional people who are in need of salvation. They're in need of a seed. So we're told of Noah's descendants and the ones that come after him. And then we come to this tower of Babel where the people of the world decide amongst themselves to make a name for themselves, to become like God. And so they build this great city and they seek to build this tower that raises to heaven. And God comes down in his judgment again, not to wipe them out, but this time to confuse their languages and to scatter humankind throughout the face of the earth, and we see again the depravity and the fallenness of man coming out of the garden. So the final thing that we considered together in Genesis chapter 11 and the final parts there are the descendants of Shem. And in that, we come to know Terah, who is the father of Abram. And here today in chapter 12 of Genesis, we begin the story of Abram. Abram is a central figure to the story of redemption. Uh, God establishes his covenant with Abram, and his descendants will be the covenant people of God, who are central also to the story of the Old Testament. He is most certainly a man of great faith, as we'll see here this morning and in the months to come as we look at the story of Abram and his sons, Isaac and Jacob. But we also will see here very quickly that Abram's family too is a family of dysfunction. And so if we come to Abram and we wonder if he is the seed, we know that he is not, but the seed of promise is still there as he will come from the line of Abram. So if you would read with me beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12 as we begin the story of Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west of Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. May God bless the reading of his word. Right away in this story, we see God speaks to Abram. In the first three verses of chapter 12, God has seven specific things that he wants to share with Abram. And the first one comes in the form of a command, go. He says to Abram there in verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land which I will show you. What is the land that Abram is residing in? Well, if you remember earlier in chapter 11, where we just came from, his father, uh, Terah, took Abram and all of his family with him, and they traveled up out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so this land is, is to the east in the region of Babylon, where we saw the Tower of Babel, and Terah decides to move his family from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan. But the text tells us there at the end of verse 21, when they came to Haran, they settled there. So Terah and his family, along with his son Abram, travel up northwest along the Euphrates and they settle there in the land of Haran. And so this is where Abram finds himself. And so Abram is in Haran. And God tells him to leave behind his country, his kindred, and his father's house to go to a land in which he will show him. Now here in the command, God does not tell him specifically where he is to go. All he commands him to do is to go. To the land that I will show you. But we know what the land is that he's going to. In fact, we see it later in verse 5. It says they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan. This is what we come to know as in the story of the Old Testament as the promised land. Canaan will become an important central character, if you will, to the story of redemption. The promised land. Where there in Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses, I'm going to deliver my people from bondage and slavery in Egypt and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land of Canaan, the land of promise. Now it's interesting, we notice there in, in chapter 11 verse 31 that originally Terah, Abram's father, had set out to go to Canaan. We can only speculate why he wanted to go to Canaan and then why he decided to stay in Haran. For whatever reason, he establishes his family there and in God's providence, he comes to Abram and says, now is time for you to go to the land which I will show you. And it is the land of promise, the land of Canaan. So the text tells us that they follow uh, there in verse 6 into Shechem, the northern part of Canaan. And then they come to the region of Bethel, which is more in the central part of Canaan. And then they finally there in verse 9, it says they travel all the way down to the southern part of Canaan in uh, going down toward the Negev. And so God tells them 
Abram, along with his family, to go. The second thing that God has to say for him is found there in verse 2, and it's broken up into three parts. Notice there in verse 2 what he says to him. He tells him, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. God promises here to Abram that he will make out of him a great nation. We know this nation to be the nation of Israel, God's chosen people of the Old Testament. He says that he will bless him and make his name great, that Abram and his descendants will be a name and a nation of great renown. And even in our day as the New Testament church, we sing of Father Abraham. Finally, he, pr- he promises that he will be a blessing, that Abram and his descendants will be a blessing be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, of all the nations. The final thing that God has to say for him is found there in verse 3, and this too is broken up into three parts. And the theme here in verse 3 also has to do with blessing, but not so much the blessing in relation to God down to Abram, but here we see the relation between Abram and the nations. He says there, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. The blessing that God places on Abram's life carries with it consequences for those who interact with Abram and his descendants. And this will be a central theme, an important part of the story of Abram and the story of Israel. As we see them interacting with all the different nations, some of them cursing them, some of them blessing them. And how God is using all of that to bring about his plan of redemption. The third thing, though, that he says to him there, the final thing in verse 3, is that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram's seed. This promise that God makes here with Abram will not just influence Abram and his descendants, but there is implications here in this promise for all of the nations, and we feel the weight of that promise today as we gather in this church to celebrate and worship the seed. Jesus Christ who came and conquered sin and death once and for all. And so God's covenant of grace that he promised and set in the garden represents in this promise with Abraham the reality of the grace that is to come by the seed. The promise in the garden will be realized through Abram's descendant. I want us to go back for a moment to the garden where we talked about this idea of the covenant of grace in the garden that God initially establishes a covenant of works with Adam. And in that covenant of works, the demands are high. And I just want to share with you the question and response that comes out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism because it walks through really well where we've been so far in Genesis in regards to this covenant. And so if you're familiar with catechism at all, there's a question that's presented and then a response. And I want you to just listen to the the order here because it's very helpful for us to understand the promises of God. The first question very simply is this, what is a covenant? The response is an agreement between two or more persons. I want us to stop there for a moment. What an incredible truth it is that the creator God of the universe condescends and comes near to us to make covenant with us. The next question says, what covenant did God make with Adam? The answer is the covenant of works. 
What was Adam bound to do by the covenant of works? To obey God perfectly. What did God promise in the covenant of works? To reward Adam with life if he obeyed him. What did God threaten in the covenant of works? To punish Adam with death if he disobeyed. We know how the story goes. The next question, did Adam keep the covenant of works? No, he sinned against God. And the next question says, can anyone be saved through the covenant of works? None can be saved through the covenant of works. The demand is too high, and Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell short, and all of us in Adam fall short of the standard that is expected of us in the covenant of works to obey God perfectly. And in our sin nature, we are born sinners in desperate need of a Savior in desperate need of someone to intervene on our behalf. And praise be to God that he did not leave us under the covenant of works, but that he establishes a covenant of grace by Christ. Listen to the next question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. With whom did God the Father make the covenant of grace? With Christ, his eternal Son. Whom did Christ represent in the covenant of grace? His people. What did Christ undertake In the covenant of grace, to keep the whole law for his people and to suffer the punishment due their sins. What did God the Father undertake in the covenant of grace? To justify and sanctify those for whom Christ died. Praise be to God that Christ comes, that he is the seed of promise, and he is the one who ratifies and finalizes the covenant of grace by his blood at the cross. And he does indeed crush the head. Of the serpent. And so the promise that God makes here to Abraham to make him into a great nation and to be a blessing and that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him points us to the blessing of Christ at the cross. That this promise that God makes with Abraham is pointing us to this cross of Christ where the blood is spilled and there Christ takes on the wrath of God in our place. That we deserve under the covenant of works so that we might receive his righteousness and salvation eternal by the atoning work that he does at the cross by his blood alone. And so as we consider the promise that God makes to Abraham here this morning, the application for us as the church and the application for those of you who are here who have never put your trust and faith this morning is this, look to Christ. Look to the seed of promise who has conquered sin and death. And just as Abram and Isaac and Jacob and all the saints of the Old Testament looked forward in faith to the promise that was to come in the Messiah, we rejoice today looking back to the fact that he has come and conquered the grave. That he is not dead in a tomb in the Middle East, but he has risen victoriously over sin and death. Look to him today. The second thing that I want us to notice here is how Abram obeys God. Turn your attention back to the text, Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. It says there, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. The immediate response that the writer gives to us here in in lieu of the command that God gives to Abram is his obedience. So Abram went as the Lord told him. 
Now, there's some interesting details that the writer gives us here. First, it says that he took Lot with him. Now, Lot will play an important role in the, later in the story of Genesis, as we'll see. But if you remember earlier, at the end of chapter 11, we're told that Lot's father, Haran, had died. And so Terah, Abram's father, had been responsible for Lot. And so now Abram is responsible for Lot. So he brings him along. It says there, too, that he brings along his wife, Sarai. She, too, will play an important role in the story later, as we will see and as we know. Notice, too, that the writer tells how old Abram is at this point. He's 75 years old. We, too, know that the age of Abram will play an important role in the story of redemption that we see unfolding in the chapters that are to come. And so, just as the disciples... When Christ comes to them at the seashore and says, follow me, and they drop their nets on the beach and follow after him, showing a complete and utter submission and obedience to Jesus, we see very much the same thing here with Abram. Whereas the disciples left their nets behind as a, as a sign of, of showing that they're leaving everything behind to follow after Jesus, here Abram takes all of his stuff with him as a sign to show his complete obedience to the Lord. Abram didn't leave behind a tent. He didn't leave behind any acquaintances. He wasn't leaving anything behind that would keep him back in Haran. He took everything and followed it in complete obedience after what the Lord had told him to do in verse 1, go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, all that you are familiar with, all that you know, to the land in which I will show you. Abram went as the Lord told him. And we're reminded here that there is no half-hearted following after God. The call of Christ on our lives is to follow him completely in utter obedience and surrender to him. We get a glimpse of this in the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and, and he asks him what he must do to enter into the kingdom of God and Jesus tells him to keep all of the commandments and the rich young ruler says to him, I have done that. And so Jesus says, go and sell all of your possessions and follow after me. And the text tells us that the young ruler leaves saddened because he wants to cling to the things of the world more than he wants to give his life to Christ. Obedience is the mark of those who follow after God. Obedience is the mark of those who are true, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And so the text here tells us that Abram was obedient to this revelation that God spoke to him. God came near to Abram and gave him a word to obey and a word of blessing. He speaks directly to Abram. And dear friends, God still speaks today to us directly by his word alone. If you want to know the will of God for your life today, look no further than the pages of this book. His revealed will according to his word is what we should seek to obey. God's will for your life is to obey the commands of Christ. We just saw this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul said this, For this is the will of God, church, your sanctification. And he follows that by saying that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
We see the same type of idea there in Romans 12 too, which we looked at a couple weeks ago at the men's conference where Paul says there that you may discern what the will of God is. What is God's will? Well, what is good and acceptable and perfect according to his word? What is good and acceptable and perfect for us as God's people today is to walk in obedience to him as he has revealed by his word and by his son. And so our response to the covenant promises of God is obedience and not out of obligation, but because we are changed. Abram is responding here in faith. And we know of his faith by his obedience. We see this in Hebrews 11.8 where it says, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As we've talked about the saints before in chapters 1 through 11 that come before Abram, that they are justified by faith in a Messiah to come, so too we see here the faith of Abram on display in his obedience. And so if we want to do God's will and walk in obedience as Abram did, we need to obey the commands of Christ. Thirdly, though, I want us to see God's faithfulness here to Abram. We pick up at the last part of of verse 5 there in chapter 12, where it says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So the text tells us here that Abram comes to Shechem in the northern part of Canaan. And there is, there's a problem. There's a clear problem. There's an adversary There's an obstacle. It's the Canaanites. This is their land. Who are the Canaanites? Well, this should be familiar to us. If you turn back to chapter 9, we saw this. If you remember, Ham was one of the three sons who looked upon the nakedness of his father Noah. And because of this act that he did and its displeasure to the Lord... There in chapter 9, verse 25, it says that it says, Cursed be Canaan. Who is Canaan? Well, it is the son of Ham. There in verse 22 of chapter 9, and Ham, the father of Canaan. And so if you look later there in chapter 10, as we saw, the Canaanites, they established themselves in the land of promise, the land that we know as the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so his, Canaan's recklessness brought a curse on him. And his descendants settle in this land. This is their land. This is their territory. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to feel the tension here. As Abram comes rolling in with his family and his stuff, and God says, this is where I'm going to establish you. And Abram looks around and he sees, well, the Canaanites are here. Abram, as a descendant of Shem, and his family were established there in in Haran. And so he comes into the promised land, and notice what it mentions here. The writer tells us of the oak of Moray there in verse 6. And theologians think that this is some tree that was a tree where the Canaanites would come and worship. And so Abram not only finds himself by a people who hold the land, but he finds himself among a people who do not fear 
the Lord. And so this is a problem. But notice what God says to Abram. At the end of verse 6, at the time the Canaanites were in the land, but verse 7 says this, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. God reassures him and shows him that this is the land of promise, that God will give it into his hands. And so what is Abram's response? He builds an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Building an altar to the Lord is done throughout the Old Testament to commemorate the Lord's faithfulness. We see too here that he does this because the Lord had appeared to him. And and, and we, we celebrate the reality again that God condescends, that he comes near, that he came to Abram and revealed this promise to him. Just as Christ condescended and he came near to us and he reveals himself to us and gives of himself to us. We do not serve a God who is distant and far, but a God who comes near to us and reveals himself to us in words. Later in in verse 8, we see the same thing where he builds another altar to the Lord when he comes to Ai. And then it tells us that he called upon the name of the Lord. Now in simple terms here, we just see this as worship. But some believe that what he's talking about here is preaching. In fact, Martin Luther, the reformer, thinks that what is being done here is that Moses is preaching the faithfulness of the Lord to these Canaanites who worship at trees who come to trees to worship false gods, that he's preaching to the nations of the faithfulness of God. So not only is our response to God's covenant promises to obey him, but to remember his faithfulness and proclaim his faithfulness to the nations. We're about halfway through the year 2023. It's hard to believe. And we come again as we started the year in Genesis again to this book here in chapter 12. And I want us to consider for a moment, what have you faced since the last time we were in Genesis? What have you walked through since we started Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Over the last six months, where have you walked? For some of you, the last six months have been some of the most difficult times of struggle and trial that you've ever faced in all of your life. For some of you, the last six months have been the most joyous, victorious seasons of life. We have experienced death in this church. We've experienced new life in this church. We have walked through many seasons individually and as a church just in the past six months. And we're reminded that the seasons change. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands firm forever. And just as we started in Genesis 1 at the beginning of this year, God is just as faithful today as we consider Genesis 12 as he was when these, we, these words were penned. He is faithful and he has proven it time and time again regardless of what we have faced in this life. And so what are you doing brother and sister, to commemorate the faithfulness of God in your life, in your home, in your church, with those that you come in contact with in the lost and dying world. The greatest demonstration of God's faithfulness to us was displayed at the cross of Christ. 
And so we need to remind ourselves of the cross, that we would preach the cross to ourselves daily, that we would preach the cross to our families daily, that we would preach the cross to one another daily, that we would preach the cross to a lost and dying world daily, that we would commemorate the faithfulness of God in practical ways, that we would decorate our homes with scripture, that we would memorize scripture, that we would not give up or neglect the meeting together as the body of Christ as we look with great anticipation to his return. He has been faithful. And may our lives be a proclamation, an altar, if you will, to the faithfulness of God in this place, in our homes, and to a lost and dying world. We serve a God who is faithful, a God who comes near, a God who makes promises and keeps his promises. I wonder if you've ever thought to yourself, um, just as an onlooker to a, a situation in life or whatever it might be, maybe you've thought to yourself before, man, this is going to be special. Something special is coming. And every time I read Genesis chapter 12, these first nine verses, this is the thought that I have, wow. God is doing something special. And we celebrate as the New Testament church the the reality that we get to look back and see the faithfulness of God to Abram and Isaac and Jacob and to David and to Paul and to Peter and to Silas. We can look back over our lives at the faithfulness of God and we can trust that he will be faithful to the end. And so may we never stop considering the covenant promises of God. May we never stop seeking to obey our master completely. And may we never stop looking to his faithfulness and being heralds of that to a lost and dying world. Would you pray with me?